Good morning and welcome. Uh, if you are new or visiting for the first time, I want to especially welcome you here this morning. Uh, for those who don't know, my name is Jordan. I'm one of the assistant pastors here, and I have the, uh, the privilege of uh, speaking a message from God's Word to you this morning. Uh, in the past few weeks, we've been looking at Revelation with Gerald. Um, Gerald will continue that series. Uh, we're almost finished, but in the meantime, um, we'll start a series on the First Thessalonians, and that series should take us all the way up to uh, Christmas. So our reading for this morning is taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, don't worry, there, there may be one in the seat in front of you. You can grab that and follow along with me. This is uh, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, starting in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, also known as Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, all of you, constantly, mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for our sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, and you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let me come before uh, God in prayer as we ask for his help in understanding it. Let's pray, if you would. Join me. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for this word. Lord, we know that I, um, Paul was a messenger, um, that I am just a preacher. But Lord, it's, it's your word. And you are the one who has given it to us. You speak to, it, to us through it. And you speak to us powerfully. We pray that you might give our minds understanding. That your spirit would bring about um, faith in our hearts. That you would challenge those who need to be challenged. And that you would comfort those who need to be comforted. Through this word we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Well I often get asked how I, how I landed in Melbourne. I usually just tell them by airplane. What's a Canadian doing here in Australia? I often get asked that. I, I get asked that in the shop. Sometimes people ask me how my vacation is going. And, uh, and then I tell them it's been a very long vacation. As some, some of you might know the story of how we came here. Some of you might not. Uh, it all started with an ad I saw on a website at a, for a, at a Bible college uh, for a pastor at a Presbyterian church in Australia. 
And all I knew about Donville was that it was in Australia, and all of the obnoxious stereotypes came to my mind. The snakes, the spiders, the Vegemite, the outback, the kangaroo, all of the obnoxious stereotypes crossed my mind. I knew I needed to research a bit more and find out about this church here that I'm at right now. So I did a Google search, and I listened to a few sermons. I discovered that the church was not in the outback. Uh, It was actually here uh, in Melbourne, and um, I needed to know what the denomination would be like. Uh, Were they evangelical? Was it reformed? Uh, Is the church uh, healthy? What's the preaching like? Do the people at the church like each other? So, um, so I called Gerald, and he gave me a, a stunning review of the church. He said, everything is wonderful here. And so I came. I'm with you. A few weeks ago, we decided uh, that the next sermon in our series would be on First Thessalonians. And, uh, and so I did much the same thing. I got to work. I wanted to research this church, the Thessalonian church that's written about here in Paul's letter. I researched, I asked questions, I asked myself where was the church located? What, were the, what was the historical context? What were some of the struggles that this church faced? Uh, what are some of the lessons we can learn from this church? And I asked those questions and then I thought to myself, well, ultimately, what can I say about the Thessalonian church? And if there's one thing that stands out about the Thessalonian church, It's that they had embraced the gospel of Jesus. They loved the gospel. They were changed by the gospel. They embraced the gospel. And so this morning I want to tell you, by way of introduction, a bit more about this church that we read about here. First, two points. First, how they embraced the gospel. And then second, how they were changed by the gospel. So starting with that first point, let's look at how the Thessalonians embraced the gospel. There's, um, it all began uh, when Paul uh, started his missionary journey. He set off on a road called the Via Ignatia. It's kind of this, uh, this Roman road that goes between Istanbul and um, the west coast of Greece. Now, Gerald wanted me to I'm not supposed to tell you that he asked me to do this, but he wants to give you a plug for his trip to Turkey. Um, If you ever get a chance to talk to Gerald after the service, you can talk about uh, this trip to Turkey, where you can actually uh, go and see some of the places where Paul journeyed. It's really an incredible opportunity. Um, But if you don't get the opportunity to actually go to Turkey, I want to try and describe the, the situation for you this morning. There's this highway that runs between Istanbul and the west coast of Greece. And all kinds of people would travel back and forth on that road. And roughly in the year 49 or 50 AD, we find the Apostle Paul. He's traveling on the the Via Ignatia. And with him are some companions. He's got, who's with him? Does anyone know? Yeah, Silas, also known as Silvanus, and Timothy. And possibly Luke. We don't know if Luke was actually with him or not, but um, some say that Luke may have been with them. And perhaps you know the story. We read about it earlier in the service in Acts chapter 16 and 17. Um, Paul and his missionaries had just escaped from Philippi. 
Now, incredible things happened in Philippi. Multiple conversions happened in Philippi. Horrible things also happened in Philippi. Uh, We know from Acts 16 that Paul and his companions had been beaten with rods. They had been flogged and they had been thrown into prison. We also know that some miraculous things happened in Philippi. In the middle of the night, um, an earthquake struck and the men were miraculously released and the guard who was watching over them came to faith. Now after experiencing all of these wonderful things and all of these horrible things and all of these miraculous things, Paul and his companions set off to the next town on their missionary journey. And that town was Thessalonica. Now you can imagine all of the kinds of emotions uh, they were experiencing. They would have been excited by uh, the conversions that they saw in Philippi. They would have been uh, weary and exhausted. Um, No one comes away from a night in a Roman prison after being beaten thinking to themselves, wow, I had a fantastic sleep and I'm feeling so refreshed. So they would have been weary and they would have felt exhausted. They had been whipped and beaten, so their bodies were likely covered with scabs and bruises. So they were in a bad way. And that's how they they arrive in Thessalonica. Now, they were probably the first Christians to ever set foot in the city. And what do we know about Thessalonica? Well, it was a religious city, very religious. On the way through the city, they would have probably passed by the temple, this temple to Venus, the goddess of love. Uh, Most of the homes would have had little shrines and little idols um, where people would bow down and worship stone statues. Uh, The ancient Greeks and Romans would uh, burn incense to gods and goddesses. And so you can just imagine Paul and Timothy and Silas walking through the streets, you know, the smell of incense in the air as they pass by all of these shrines and temples to just a plethora of gods. The first stop in the city was this Jewish, little Jewish synagogue. There was a small Jewish community in Thessalonica. It was not exclusively Jewish. Uh, Jews would gather in the synagogue, but sometimes uh, Gentiles and uh, non-Jews would come in and gather outside the synagogue and listen to the messages that were being taught and preached there. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, look down at Acts chapter 17. We read it earlier in the service, but um, just by way of reminder... I'll uh, read verses 1 to 4 for you. And it says this. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was this Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went to the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. As some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So they have this opportunity to speak in the synagogue And Paul chooses a passage from the Old Testament. Now, why does Paul choose a passage from the Old Testament? Well, because 
That was there in when he wrote this, there was only an Old Testament. There was no New Testament. The New Testament did not exist as we know it at that time. So Paul was preaching from the Old Testament. And what was he preaching about? He was preaching Christ, Jesus. He was explaining how Jesus uh, was to come, suffer, and die. And he was teaching it from where? The Old Testament. He was preaching Christ from the Old Testament. And how do you think the congregation responded to his preaching? What do you think they thought about his sermon? Well, we know the response was mixed. As some were converted. You know, a large number of Gentiles were converted. Some Jews and some believing women. Some were unhappy with the preaching. And what we know is that, that lines were drawn. Sides were taken. Uh, the synagogue was split into two. Now, in those days, if you didn't like the sermon, you, you wouldn't go and write an email to the pastor. In those days, if you didn't like the sermon, you formed a mob. It's rather extreme. That's what happened. And Acts 17 tells us that a mob was formed. A riot started in the city. And in the middle of the night, Paul and his companions fled the city. So the moral of the story is this. If you don't like my sermon, please don't form a mob. Just send me an email. Or better yet, send Gerald an email. And Paul faced opposition in the form of a mob, not an email. But he also had some success. At least the book of Acts tells us how this group of people came to faith in Christ. Now, it wasn't because Paul spoke so eloquently. It wasn't because Paul had a a cool PowerPoint. It wasn't because he had a church with multiple staff. It wasn't because he had a big budget. It's not because he had a really good Sunday school. Paul had none of those things. None of those things that that so many churches, even at times our church, think that we need. He had none of those things. What did he have? He had a Bible. He had the Old Testament. He didn't even have the New Testament scriptures. He had the Old Testament scriptures. And he rocks up. For three weeks. And all he does is he opens up the scriptures. And he teaches from them. And he simply brings them. The message of Jesus Christ. No frills. No bells. No smells. No whistles. Just Jesus. And we're told in verse 5 that that was powerful. That it completely changed the dynamic of that synagogue. And it completely changed the dynamic of that entire region. Now, let me ask you. Like, why, why would people believe what Paul had to say? I mean, just picture it again. You know, he's, he's come to the synagogue. He's weary. He's tired. He's bruised. He's beaten. He's battered. And... He's come with this message that seems rather new. 
Not only that, but being, becoming a Christian in ancient Rome had all kinds of negative consequences. Becoming a Christian in ancient Rome meant what? It meant giving up your friends, giving up your family, perhaps giving up your reputation. You could have lost your job. You could even lose your life. Why would you become a Christian? You have no physical proof that Jesus died and rose from the dead, from the grave. And now you are going to stake your entire life on a man, on an itinerant preacher, who is covered in scabs and bruises. How did Paul's preaching attract so many people? And why did the early church grow so quickly in such a hostile environment? Yeah, one of the most hostile environments I know of in the world is my garden. And I, I do try to give my garden lots of love and attention. And I try and give it this ideal environment to flourish, but it still dies. All my plants still die. And a couple summers ago, I just gave up on some of my plants. And I discarded them into the back corner of the garden. I gave them no water. I gave them no attention. I punished them. And guess what? They grew. <laughs> and they flourished without my help. Sure, Paul preached the gospel, and what we would think is a hostile environment, one of the most hostile environments in the world. And yet, in spite of that, the church grew like wildfire. How did that happen? Well, the answer is in verses 4 to 5. The first thing that we need to know is that this was part of God's plan. God had a plan for the Thessalonian church, and nothing could thwart that plan. Paul reminds these people that they have been loved by God and chosen by God, that they are part of God's sovereign plan. And we know that God chose to save the Thessalonians not because of their beauty, not because of their wit, not because they were really dedicated and genuine, not because of anything that had to do with them. Why did, why did uh, God choose to send Paul to the city? Why did God choose this church, this Thessalonian church, of all places in the world? Why did the gospel come to this church? You see, what distinguishes the Christian gospel from every other religion in the world is that every religion in the world says, show me your credentials. Tell me what you've done. Give me your resume. Give God a reason why he should save you. Well, what does Christianity teach? It teaches that God chose to save us in spite of what we've done. He chooses to save us because it's part of his plan. He chooses to save us because of his gracious, sovereign, electing purpose. We are part of God's plan of salvation. And nothing can thwart his plans. And we're talking about the God of heaven and earth. You think anyone or anything can thwart his plans? No. Not the Roman Empire, not persecution, not the religious officials. And the implication is this. If you truly belong to God, if you are his child, then not even the gates of hell can rip you from the hand of Jesus Christ. 
And so he wants to remind them of this because this little church had been experiencing much persecution and many hardships and they needed to be reminded that they were part of God's plan. Now look at verse 5. We read that our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Imagine the Roman citizen hearing this message for the first time. He's a pagan. He worships the pantheon of gods. He, he lives the average Roman life. He has no interest in becoming a Christian. He's never read the Bible. But one day, he sees this crowd gathering around the synagogue. He wonders what all the fuss is about. And he's confronted by the message of Jesus. He hears Jesus died, Jesus rose again. And the Roman citizen, or perhaps it was a Jewish Pharisee, or a tax collector, or a centurion, or an atheist, or a skeptic, whoever it was, they, in a moment, they go from unbelief to belief. How does that happen? How do convictions change like that? Well, what does Paul say? He says, not just by the preaching of the word, but, but the power of the Spirit. When Paul preached, God's Spirit was present, convicting the hearts and minds of the people who were hearing. Whenever the word is preached, God's Spirit works in hearts and lives. When I get up to preach, I don't stir your mind. I don't move your will. I can't go into your head and change your beliefs. I can barely get people to barrack for Richmond. I can't force you to believe the Bible. I can't make you trust in Christ. But my, my job as a minister is simply to present what the Bible says. To open up the scriptures and say, this is who Jesus is. This is what he does, has done, and this is why it matters. And then God does the heavy lifting. You see, whenever we preach the good news, God's Spirit is the one who effectually and actively engages and changes hearts and persuades minds and transforms lives. Which is exactly what happened to the Thessalonians. Which is my second point this morning. And we see here how the Thessalonians were changed by the gospel, how they were transformed by the gospel here in this passage. One of the features of an unhealthy church is that unhealthy churches are unmoved, unfazed, and unchanged by the preaching. Let me give you an example of an unhealthy church in the Bible. The church at Laodicea. We know that that was an unhealthy church. What did John call that church? He said that they were lukewarm. They were spiritually indifferent. They were complacent. Or what about the church of Sardis? The church of Sardis in, in the book of Revelation was this church that was, had this reputation for being alive. But they were actually dead. And Paul says, for those who are sleeping, wake up. There are some churches you walk in the door 
And you get to know the people and you wonder, do the people here even believe the Bible that they are reading from? For one, they look miserable. For two, they don't even want to be there. And for three, there's, there's no real indication that they want to read, study, or grow. The, the church is just a box to tick. Second, they don't understand the gospel. If you were to understand them, well, what is the gospel of Jesus? They wouldn't be able to tell you. And third, they don't actually practice what they preach. There's not even a little bit of evidence that the faith they profess has actually changed them. But if you look at the Thessalonian church, we see that it was a healthy church. Paul describes it as a healthy church. It wasn't a perfect church. In the words of R.C. Sproul, there is no perfect church on this side of heaven. And if you find one, don't join it because you'll just spoil it. So there is no perfect church. But there are churches that are healthy and unhealthy. And this church, the Thessalonian church, was a healthy church. It was a church that was producing fruit. Now, in my garden of death, we have this orange tree. And, um, and we know, I know that it's, many summers ago, I knew that it was unhealthy because it was not producing fruit. So I gave it a bit of care, and eventually it's produced an orange, or two oranges. Now, it's not the orange that actually makes the tree alive. The tree lives because of the tree itself, because of the root systems and the trunk. The orange is just the fruit or the the result of the life and vitality that is in that tree. In Matthew 7, Jesus said that, that by your fruits you will know them. How do we know that a church has embraced the gospel? How do we know that Christians have embraced the gospel? Well, you will see signs of fruit. You will see signs of life. Now, I am not saying that, that, the, that the fruit or the, the good works that proceed from faith save us. But I am saying that there will be signs of God's work in your heart and life if you have truly embraced the gospel. And there were many signs of life in the Thessalonian church. The first sign was transformation. We see transformation. Look at verses 2 and 3 in your Bibles. What Paul gives thanks for their work of faith, their labor of love, and the endurance which inspires hope. So like as Paul's looking at, at the church, he sees these fruits of faith. He sees faith, hope, and love. He sees a church that was that even when Roman centurions came knocking on their doors, even when persecution began to ramp up, we see a church that persisted. And they kept trusting in Christ, they kept loving each other, and they kept putting their hope in the gospel, even as uh, persecution ensued. And then look at verse 9. In verse 9, we see this remarkable change. In their lifestyle. These Christians immediately turn to God. And they immediately turn away from idols in order to serve the true and living God. Now just something about um, Roman culture. In Roman culture, 
idol worship was one of the most important things you could do as a, as a Roman citizen. Worshiping the emperor was another important thing, and being part of you know, Roman life, Roman civic life, was another important thing you could do. Religion permeated one's entire life. And so to turn away from Roman religion and to turn to Christ was effectively giving up everything. You would lose, like I said, you would lose your family, your friends, you could lose your reputation, you could lose even your job. And so this is no small thing that this little group of Christians turned away uh, from their idol worship. Now the second sign of life here is imitation. Now let's just read verse 6 together. And it says this, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Icaia. They were imitators. They were imitators of who? Christ. They wanted to think like Jesus. They wanted to walk like Jesus. They wanted to talk like Jesus. And they became imitators of Paul. They followed the example of, of Paul. My parents, bless their hearts, they probably will listen to this later, they used to say to me, do as I say, not as I do. And if you're watching mom and dad, that was some of the worst advice you could ever give me. It's not a good parenting strategy, and it's not a biblical parenting strategy. Because as Paul says here, we lead by example. I'm a dad. I want my son to love his wife as Christ loved the church. So what does that mean for me? That I need to model that actively. That I need to lead by example and live by example. Because the way that my son is going to learn the gospel is not just through my words, but it's through the Spirit's power, and it's through a life that has been modeled for him. That's how he's going to learn. And that's how you learned the gospel. That's how you grow in your Christian faith. Not just by being told, but by seeing it in action, and by knowing that God's Spirit is powerfully working in your heart, changing and transforming you to make you like Christ. But notice here also, he says that they received the word in much affliction. And so Paul was modeling what it meant to live like a Christian in times of affliction. That's what he was modeling. He was showing the believers at Thessalonica what it means to persevere on the hard days, to persevere when the going gets tough, to persevere even when you're being beaten and whipped. And that's what he's saying here. And so... He's modeling the Christian faith for believers so that they might, when they receive persecution, they might be ready to face that persecution. And I think that's what he has in mind here. But nevertheless, we need to, part of our, our responsibility as Christians is to model our Christian walk towards others. So transformation, imitation, proclamation. Let's uh, just have a look at verse 8. What does verse 8 say? It says, The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Nicaea. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. 
Therefore, do not, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report the kind of reception you gave us. Not only did they live like Jesus, but they announced what God has done in them. What does Paul say here? He says that the Lord's message rang out from them. They could do nothing but share what God has done in them. You know, when we lived in Florida, there was, we would drive past this church and there would be this little sign on the side of the road, kind of like the sign that we have. It was an electronic sign. And they used to put up uh, clever little sayings uh, that would make you laugh, humorous little sayings. And one of the sayings that they put on this sign was, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. And that was, that was the worst sign I've ever seen. Because we are not called to preach the gospel without words. There's no way you can preach the gospel without words. Um, if Paul did not use his words in Thessalonica, no one in that church would be saved or converted. We are told here that, that God is pleased to use our words to bring the gospel to a lost world. And so we need to not only live out our Christian faith and model it for others, but we need to explain the Christian faith clearly. We need to articulate what we believe to others, to explain and share what God has done with, in us with others. There's this story, in, true story in Luke 8. Jesus and his disciples were passing through the region of Gerasenes. You might know this you might know the story. And as they're passing through this region, they encounter a man who was possessed by a demon. The man uh, was injuring himself. He was blaspheming God, screaming out profanities. He was um, sleeping in the cemetery, sleeping in the tombs. And Jesus confronts this man. The short of the story is that he casts all of these demons out of this man and into a group of pigs, a swarm of pigs. And the man uh, finds himself in his right mind. And he becomes a follower of Jesus. Now once this man had been delivered from those demons, what do you think his response was? To go back and keep sleeping in the tombs? To keep harming himself? To continue living in isolation? No, the gospel changed him. And his, his response, his first response was, Jesus, can I come with you? And when he discovered that he couldn't go with Jesus, he went to the nearest town and proclaimed to the whole town what Jesus had done in him. I think that's a good example of, of what I'm talking about here this morning. Now, that's a, that's a dramatic example, but I think the principle is still true. As we live in this world, we proclaim, we're called to proclaim the faith that we have in Christ and what God has done in us. Now, that could be, that could be you know, through preaching, but it could also be just in having ordinary conversations with people. I mean, you don't have to get up here in the pulpit to share your faith. You can just go out for coffee with someone. Chat with someone. Have, a, have an ordinary conversation with them. I was struck a few months ago, uh, Voice of the Martyrs came to our church, and Marcel, one of the reps, 
shared the story of some missionaries who served in China. And they, these missionaries had reached a, a small village. And much like Paul, they preached the gospel to people who had never heard it before. And they explained how Jesus came, died, rose again. And the entire village, just about the entire village, came to faith in Christ. And after the elder uh, of the village, the, the leader, came to faith, he went to the missionary and said, Tell me, how long ago did this man Jesus die and rise from the, the dead? And the missionary said, Well, look, it was 2,000 years ago. And the guy's jaw dropped. And then he said to the missionary, what took you so long? Coming back to the Thessalonians, they were eager, eager to tell others what they had come to discover about Jesus. It was so important to them that they couldn't help but share it with others. When the gospel came to them, there was real transformation. But I want to clarify that this transformation happened not because they transformed themselves. They were changed and transformed by God. Now, God is in the business of transforming lives. For some of us, that change, for people like me, that change over the years was slow and steady. It didn't happen all at once. For others, that change is quite dramatic. But irrespective of how the change happens, what we need to know is that it is God who changes us. So that's the story of the Thessalonian church. It was a church that embraced the gospel, and it was a church that was changed by the gospel. And Paul begins his letter here by saying, what? Thank you. He thanks God for this little church. He thanks God for all that he, he has done in the lives of these people. He's so grateful for the church. And so that's his evaluation. Now, as I conclude, I promised you um, earlier an evaluation of Donville. And the reason we came to Australia, the reason I brought my wife here and my kids and why we wanted to serve here together is because we, we came to discover that this church is a church that not only has embraced the gospel, but it is a church filled with people who have been transformed by the grace of God. Now, we're not a perfect church, but over the last five years, I've come to find that this group of people is a group that's committed, much like the Thessalonians, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have been changed by the good news, and you want to share the good news of Jesus with others. And God will continue to do his good work in you. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father in heaven, we do thank you um, for the message that you have given all those years ago to the Thessalonians and how you use your word now to speak to our hearts and our minds. Lord, that we might not only embrace the gospel, that, but that we might be changed and transformed by it. That our minds might be renewed by it and that we might be spurned on to love and good works. Help us now to live a life, Lord, that is dependent on your grace. And 
Help us, Lord. Give us wisdom as we share the faith that we have come to profess with others. So we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.